Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm half of your hosts, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. And today we have, yeah, dude, we've got such a special thing. A special edition. Yes. We have managed to recruit two of our colleagues from the Institute of Race Relations, and we tried to recruit a third. But uh, uh, And he shall remain unnamed, but he was not able to make it today, unfortunately. And it's a shame because, in a sense, some of this was his idea. But anyway, uh, our two colleagues are, of course, the uh, fiery, feisty, and I don't know what else to say, balding, I suppose, Herman Pretorius. Herman, how are you? I, this hairline is is it's 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 not receding. It's just far back. It's like Hadrian's Wall. It's not moving. It's just away from the border where it should be, and it's been there for a couple of years now. So just 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 step step just step the fuck back, please. Just I, 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 I only said that because you you let your head down as you said that, and I saw a little ball patch. It's <laughs> not a ball patch. That's it's it, dude. It's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I had, I had uh, uh, my girlfriend accidentally shaved a bald patch into my head the other day, so it's fine. Um, you're just welcome to the club. And of course, uh, the line of Benoni himself, the powerful, the influential, the magnificent Mr. Marius Ruit. Marius, how are you? How's it, guys? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. Being yeah. in uh, your early 40s, you look at photos from when you're in your early 20s, and you can see. That even mm-hmm. if you don't look like you're going bald, everybody's lost a bit of their hair. Obviously, not as much as Harriman has in his late twenties, but still. <laughs> no, one does lose a bit. <laughs> that's true. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm losing my dignity more than my hair. So, can, just, I mean, what? This is cruelty. No, no, no sorry. We're going to move on. Ambush you completely, completely. So, I, I apologize, Herman, for bullying you so viciously. Um, I've warned about but, this toxic work environment when people bully, bully other people. Guys, Lance, if you think work, this is fiery and heated. On a work WhatsApp group, I put a very funny going. meme. I put very, lots of hours in. I didn't even get one laughing smiley. So I knew it was toxic work environment. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, it was a group that I was point. in, and I try not to move too much with laughing because I might lose follicles. <laughs> I, I see. I've, I see. I've opened a well wound worked. that that was not well healed. Anyway, um, so why why do we have these two uh, uh, colleagues here with us today? Um, well, we're because gonna, we have a it's weird because it's a, Yeah, it's a super amazing week, and I am going to name the name Franz Krenier, our CEO, put to <laughs> us, uh, perhaps with his tongue in his cheek, perhaps very earnestly, a proposition that Jacob Zuma might have been one of the greatest leaders the South Africa has ever seen, that he might have been up there with Mandela, Sisulu, de Klerk, that he uh, had all the ambition, all the intelligence, all the noose, all the soft and hard skills, all the discipline, and all the tenacity that were required to engender the reforms necessary to keep South Africa on an upward trajectory. And that his failure to accomplish this is largely down to the fact that he grew up with a chip on his shoulder, having grown up as a kind of peasant in the in the rural areas without much formal education, without much worldliness, and that he felt a little bit insecure once the ANC came to power and the struggle was over. Insecure amongst the 
sort of hoity-toity, fashionable namby-pamby elites. Insecure amongst those who could name which vintage they prefer of uh, some fancy Bordeaux, can talk about holidays in Aspen or share prices and GDP figures, and that he therefore sought sucker. He sought respect, and he found none of it in the business community, he found all of it in the ultra-left, and so went that way rather on the basis of expedience than on the basis of ideology, that he didn't really believe in many of the moves that were made by the ANC under his tenure, but that he saw which way the wind was blowing and therefore tacked his sail accordingly. Now, I think that's an interesting idea, and I think we have some people who are going to argue for it. I might even argue for it a bit myself, but uh, I, in, my, in the original conversation, found myself arguing against it. And I think that we're going to get into this debate in earnest about whether or not Jacob Zuma might have been one of the great reformers in South Africa if he'd had a different treatment from uh, what you might disparagingly call the white right or what you might more frankly call uh, you know, business and academic elites, uh, well, business elites and, uh, and centrists uh, around the corridors of power. And, and we'll have this conversation in earnest. But I want to say that this is a counterfactual conversation. This is a conversation about how the world could have been if something different in history had happened. We're not going to prove things one way or another. And the purpose of the conversation is therefore in part to try to figure something else out. And we'll get there later on. Once we've actually dealt with the meat and potatoes of whether Zuma could have been a great man, I think then we're going to zoom out and learn a little bit about what you get from having this conversation. But I just want to premise this with, this is a little bit like a conversation about who's the greatest tennis player of all time. Is it Roger Federer <laughs> or Novak Djokovic or Pete Sampras or some other guy? You know, especially Bjorn Bork. There are there are conversations that sports fans have where they where they want teams from different eras to meet and figure out who's best. And you can't do that. It's a counterfactual. There's no real contest that could be had. There's no real scientific way to test this thought experiment. And so, it, so that gives it a kind of waiting and a kind of intellectualism that I think is kind of fun. Um, but 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 good to keep that clear. So Nick. Uh, I've I've given my sort of uh, philosophical preface. Uh, why don't you <laughs> Why don't you wade us into the mud here? Yeah. So so uh, Herman and Morris, feel free to jump in uh, when, whenever you want. But basically, I think one of the central blocks that this idea stands on is the fact that Jacob Zuma has proven to be a remarkably talented politician. That despite having so many things against him, right? The fact that he didn't have this good education, the fact that he, you know, kind of came from nowhere, the fact that he was corrupt. I mean, you know, that was that was like the first time I ever heard about him in my life when I was but a wee slip of a lad. Uh, he was, he, you know, it was him basically being fired as deputy president because he was being connected to a big corruption scandal. And yet he managed to completely hold the country in a lot of ways in the palm of his hand for many years. And even up till his arrest the other day, we were still talking about him. We were talking about whether he was going to go to jail. And 
what he was going to do, what his moves were, what his plans are. In fact, we're still, to some degree, talking a little bit about this. I mean, uh, I know that the first thing many people uh, I talked to said when, when they heard he had handed himself over to be arrested was, ha, but how does this fit into his master plan? And they meant that earnestly, right? Because the dude has some skills. Um, I personally believe that while he is an amoral, uh, malignant personality who has who has caused serious damage to South Africa, that he is a genius. Um, and so I, one of the ways that this conversation really started going in our meeting the other day was I kind of, I, I expressed this fact where we were all sort of talking about Zuma and what we thought was going on. And, and France seized on it to, to develop this thesis. Um, so, Herman, what side of this do you fall down on? Do you think that in another universe, in an alternate reality, Zuma could have been maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit of a good guy, good force, something useful yes. to, for the country? Yes. Yes. And, and, and I, uh, a, a few things. Um, I, I think one thing that that that's really interested me over the the, the last year, especially um, reading a few book about books about Ramaphosa and you know a slew of new leaders across the world, um, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, um, so Ramaphosa. I, I really one thing that that sort of struck me as, as something that stuck it it rings true for me is the fact that the personal um, character. Of, of a leader is about 50% of what they do in office. Um, in the sense that the, 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 the character is the vehicle that you can pour ideology into in a, in a, in a very cynical way, perhaps. And I'm on, a, I'm on a, this will come as a massive surprise to everyone. I'm on a Margaret Thatcher appreciation group on Facebook. Um, and the other guy, <laughs> I thought of it. To the surprise, surprise. of no one. <laughs> yes, no, no, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, who could have, who could have seen it coming? Um, uh, Kamala Harris probably no she she wouldn't say she would say don't, don't come but the um, in in this group there was this constant hagiographication of Margaret Thatcher you know just she was spectacular and she was just stylish and she was so beautiful and she was so effective and she was so strong and I got on the bad side of a few of the people in the group where I said you know yeah that's all good and well she probably were these things but remember if she was on the other side of the second you got on the bad side of a group of people. I must say, it surprised me. It's I, I really am, am I, I, I mean, I'm still why I'm drinking. But um, the I, I said to them that you know you realize that if she was on the other side and she had all the personal characteristics that she has, the the because strength of conviction, the character, the integrity, the, the style, or the, the the panache, whatever you want to call it. But she was on the other side of your ideological spectrum. All of those things you would have seen as weaknesses and not as strengths. You would have hated her for the things you now praise her for. And I think that's something that we should understand about leaders is that you you can look at their personal you know characteristics and you can look at someone like LBJ or Julius Malema and understand that there's a character driven desire behind what they do, what they seek, the sort of affirmation and validation and attention they want from the world, that is only 50% of what they ultimately do in their political careers. I think someone like Jacob Zuma was so dominated in his character, by his desire to be accepted by the makers of the world, the pipe-smoking intellectuals that sort of look down on him. It's this sort of weird 
counterintuitive thing that he hated them and because he hated them they were so important to him um, that that made him this populist force populist force of character that had um, the right people understood what Jacob Zuma was after um, he could have the character the vessel of his character could have been poured made full with good ideas that could have promoted this ego desire of his and to 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 end off this rumbling, you know stumbling soliloquy is the perfect example of this sort of character driving politics currently in the world i think is boris johnson that man has had i mean he's a serial adulterer um, he's dishonest he's a liar uh, um, on record he but the thing that drives him, and you will see this throughout his career, is he has a pathological need to be loved. That's why he does what he does. That's why he can penetrate the red wall for labor, because he wants to be loved and he has found a group of people that will love him. And, and I think that informs his political leadership. And in the same way, the, 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 the Jacob Zuma in Earth 2, could have been a similar character of desire if only the right people had understood those desires and given him the validation that he so desperately saw. Can I just yeah. say that I think one of the one of the keys here uh, uh, is that his anti you talked about his anti intellectualism that he kind of pushed back against um, clever blacks. Yeah, yeah, that exactly. He said it in his own words, right? Those were his own yes. words. Um, that's perhaps why he didn't buy into Mbeki's HIV/AIDS denialism stuff. Which, yes, uh, it's it's, it's counter-definition. I mean, I I think brothers do this a lot. Ironically, I know I did it a lot with my brother when I was younger. We are very very different, and our differences made us increasingly more different because we were defining each other as the the opposite in of the other person. Yeah, yeah. So you have this weird thing. You've got the intellectual of Mbeki and this bizarre anti-intellectual outlier of AIDS, but then you've got this populist and this bizarre anti-populist outlier of AIDS on the other side. So it's, it, it is this, 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 this yeah, and, to, and to make that a bit more precise, I think that Mbeki's move on the HIV thing, in some sense, was driven by a kind of race nationalism. He was very insecure right. about the thought that um, I mean, black people are getting HIV at a higher rate. And, and there, I don't know that there's so much of a difference. But also, it is partly driven by the sense that, you know, I'm a sophisticated guy. I know how to read the science. I know how to, you know, uh, see through the... Uh, the lies general lies being yeah. told by the who they're just sort of pro-vaccine kind of mishuganas uh what really matters i i can peri cherry pick the, the the data results that i think support my view and make speeches in parliament about that i'm bold enough to go and send my minister to the un to push beetroot and talk about the science behind how that's really good and so he was like, he was quite highfalutin. And I think that his intellectualism did inform that decision. But it also informed that decision, his kind of semi-AIDS denialism, also semi, well, his major recalcitrance in terms of rolling out what was needed at the time. And this was, this was a sympathy for neoliberalism. Uh, Becky did seem to think that we can't afford to roll out uh, lots of health 
expensive right. AIDS drugs to everyone who needs it and I'm worried about the pharmaceuticals making a lot of money off of us by falsely stoking fears that that really should be addressed with you yeah. know solving poverty and right yeah right. and and zuma i think that is a kind of in it's a it's a sort of intellectual line also an anti-elitist line but at the same time it's it's kind of centrist kind of right wing actually you know let the let let the poor people find the solutions for themselves and i do think that zuma was always man of the people enough to see that that was uh that that was just inhumane really and right. in that sense his his contraposition to mbeki did result in one of the more important shifts in the right direction that the ANC has ever taken, which was, you know, basically since Mandela, it's hard to see mistakes that the ANC made that they then righted in a serious way. Yes. Uh, but one of those would be the mistakes made by Mbeki on HIV then being corrected under Zuma's reign. And and I think that, yeah, Hadman's given a good account of how, of how the personality issues of you know these these brothers in arms kind of competing for prestige along different axes, Becky with his pipe and his Shakespeare quotes, Zuma with his ability to connect with the people. How that actually does play out in policy, and I think Nicholas's point is that you know if you well at least if Nicholas is right, you've got this kind of genius. He's got these capacities. If you if you if you get more wins like that, then maybe you do end up getting a great presidency or at least a really seriously good one. Marius? Yeah, we haven't heard from you. Marius, which side are you on? Uh, I just want to pick up what you're saying with Zuma's insecurities and stuff. I think a lot of it comes from possibly how he felt in the ANC because up until Jacob Zuma came to power, the ANC was basically a middle-class movement led by you know the kind of black elite from mm -hmm. when it was started up until Thabo Mbeki. I mean, Thabo Mbeki and Nelson Mandela were both uh, very highly educated uh, they're both, uh, um, Nelson Mandela comes from cause uh, uh, of royalty. Uh, Thabo Mbeki's grandfather was apparently a chief. So they're both kind of, you know, your <clears throat> elites. Uh, the, going back the to the Cosa Nostra is how they were referred to. And yeah, exactly. But I mean, they weren't, right. they, they were also, they were elites of the, of the time. They both, yeah, I mean. I believe, I believe Mbeki's parents actually were some of those um, uh, black South Africans who assimilated very much into the sort of colonial education structure and yeah. believed that they were there to, or it might be his grandparents, I can't remember, then believed that they were there to uplift exactly. the black nation into into the modern world. I mean, that was yeah. they had a very sort of colonial view of South Africa. And that's a founding that's a founding ANC principle, by the way. If you go mm. all the way back to Saul Pleike, Saul Pleike is an erudite man who translates Shakespeare into Kosa and is a and and Sutu, I think he was Sutu and Kosa. Um, and he, 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 the founding movement of the ANC was to gather information about the Land Act and take the lobby to Cape Town, a little bit to Pretoria, but really to London mm. and beg the king in the name oh, yes. of British Empire to intercede on behalf of him, his majesty's subjects. Mm on the basis under English common law that all citizens shall be treated equally regardless of race. So the ANC was founded as a pro-colonial, pro-UK movement. And I do think that Marius is right to point out that that stuck around and that, that, that Zuma was not, I just want to expand on this to say that I don't think Zuma was alone in feeling alienated within that structure. Um, but I think that the, 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 the next thing to notice is that uh, Moscow replaced London, Right as the kind of high pinnacle 
of ANC international prestige and ambition and social connection. And there again, Zuma seems to have been left out. Eh? He doesn't seem to have uh, the, the same kind of Moscovite social socialist uh, intellectual credentials as, as many I just quickly I just quickly want to check, uh, because I think Marius was about to, to, to make a, a a bigger point as to until Zuma came to power, the ANC yeah. was one thing. Sorry, Marius did. Well, that was, that was uh, kind of the, like the ANC, as I say, was always kind of an elite-led movement. I think Zuma was one of the guys who was the first. I mean, he is, like however you want to put it, he is much more uh, common man's touch than Mbeki. I think Mandela had it, but Mbeki, I don't think, had it. I mean, there's a photo. I was actually, I was trying to look for it the other day. And it was, uh, I think it was one of the campaigns, probably 1999 or 2004, where Zuma and Mbeki are both somewhere, probably rural Transkar, and they're sitting around drinking Mbote out of a paint can or whatever. And you can see Tabo Mbeki is so uncomfortable. You can see he wants to crawl out of his skin. While Jacob Zuma is just chilling there, you can see he's he's very comfortable. He's chilling with the, the guys. You know, they most of them probably haven't been to school. You know, they, they're just happy to listen to football on the radio and they go herd their cars and stuff. Uh, Jacob Zuma, he, he's, he's, he's comfortable with those type of people. And Tabo Mbeki wasn't. But also, I think <clears throat> the, your point about uh, Tabo Mbeki also being quite insecure is also a good one. And I think somewhere you can point to was a very good example of that in recent African history was Rob Mugabe. I mean, he, that guy, he, his rhetoric was one, he, he despised the English and British traditions and so on. But he wanted to, he was a black Englishman. He loved cricket. Yeah, more he, loved than the queen. He, he loved, uh, you know, driving around in his, or being chauffeured around in his Rolls Royce. And it's actually, uh, it was, it's quite interesting how in a couple of countries, Zimbabwe is apparently an example of it, where it's all this draft for decolonization and so on. But the uh, judges sit on the Supreme Court and the High Court and so on. They do not want to get rid of those woolen hot robes that you should not be wearing in an African summer, those big woolen wigs and so on. They are so set against getting rid of it. And those are these, the most obvious, like, uh, symbols uh, of examples. colonial empire. Yeah. Exactly. Of colonization, yeah. Yeah, of British colonialism. Mm -hmm. But they refuse to get rid of them. And just this interesting dichotomy between, you know, claiming or fighting for decolonization, but then wanting to keep a lot of the trappings of the empire and of uh, Britain or whatever the cases. But I, I think I think a point of proof that, or as close as we can come in a counterfactual, that Zuma had the, 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 the potential to be immensely great is the AIDS thing. Um, that he was led there, not by some ideological fundamental conviction, but by pragmatism um, and by the love of the people getting him in that direction. If we're going to believe the IRR's polling over decades, um, and we envision a world where Zuma was connected with the soft um, right, um, the classical liberal alignment, you know, where perhaps your ACDP could be today, then you can see a pragmatic politician understanding enough about power, if not of policy, to know that that would be where he should invest his time. And I think the, the AIDS thing man, is, is the best example we have that this man had the seeds of greatness in it. Okay, so here's my pushback. Now, you guys have now... Hold on, can I, can I do a pushback? I've got a pushback. Go ahead, Nick. <laughs> so, let me pull a David Mabuza here and switch sides at the last minute and say that... You bastard. What? You bastard. 
<laughs> what do we think of the idea that Zuma's genius and cunning and skill and all these things were only useful because he was very talented at being a master cynical manipulator of systems and a uh, great manipulator of people and power and that it was the fact that he was doing sort of amoral uh, characterless actions uh, are the only reasons why he was super successful. Okay, so I agree, and I want to ramify this pushback by saying the following. Herman has brought up a very important point, and it's something in the listener's mind to distinguish between the question that we're asking, could Zuma have been a great reformer? That's a different question too. Could South Africa have elected, after Thabo Mbeki, a great South African reformer? So I put this another way, in terms of policies that sit at the heart of IRR work. BEE is uh, passed around 2002-2003 and is implemented properly 2007. And these are five very important years because one, Gabriel Krauser, uh, went through high school in those five years and doubled in his height. It's also a very important five years uh, to some people, uh, and I include myself amongst those, because the country's GDP in nominal terms doubled. In real terms, grew at 5% per annum. It really was the boom time. The ANC's fiscal discipline, Tito and Boweni taking over from Chris Stulse at the Reserve Bank did exactly the right things. Trevor Manuel taking over at the finance department did the right things. Rolling out piped water, electricity, and uh, roads and RDP houses to people. The right things were happening there. The labor markets were effectively net being liberalized uh, relative to where things had been, and private wealth was growing. So this was a good time. At the same time, the seeds were being sown for uh, some bad things. Cater deployment, BEE, corruption of the civil service. And from there, you get to the point where you can't turn the lights on. Now, not being able to turn the lights on and the potholes not working and that kind of stuff. That's also, by the way, in the 90s and early 2000s, murder rates halved, crime went down. You know, unemployment went down. This is an important thing to remember about the, the growth. It really was good growth. So it was good times when Zuma took over, but the seeds had been sown for the badness to come. And the question is, could South Africa have elected a genuine centrist to say, look, here's how BE is going to work. It goes for five years and then it's over. And from then on, there's going to be enough empowered black diamonds that we're not going to use the law to pretend that a black multimillionaire is disadvantaged. From then on, what we're going to do is non-racial, needs-based empowerment. We're going to work it like the social grant system. So we are going to have education uh, subsidization for the poor. And in fact, we're going to use a voucher system because we can see that the school system is not working very nicely. And we see that clever countries around the world that have deal dealt with similar problems to us with the legacy of bad education have had to rely on this kind of policy reform to get over it. So could South Africa have implemented the center or center-right policies that I think uh, needed to be done on a democratic basis? Could, could that have been popular? And the answer is yes, on the basis of our polling. And what would it have taken? It would have taken someone with some of Zuma's attributes, just the attributes that you guys spoke about, someone who's uh, manipulative, in the ways that all politicians have to be when they're successful. Someone who's charismatic, and in South Africa's context, that kind of charisma would have had to be a man of the people charisma uh, because it would have had to say something along the lines of, look, the fancy pantsers at Ivy League universities in America and the New York Times and CNN and the fancy pantsers in South Africa uh, are very pro this kind of equality of outcomes, race cookie cutter kind of 
soft touch stuff. Uh, and what I'm after is very pragmatic, hardcore solutions. Someone much more like Lee Kuan Yew. And, and that would have taken uh, someone with, I think, Zuma's style and his capacity to manipulate people. So pairing these questions apart, could South Africa have elected a genuine reformer? Yes. There could have been someone who could have ceased, who could have seen that opportunity and seized the momentum uh, after Mbeki. Say, this guy was halfway there, but a little bit too clever for himself, and he missed some big important things, and we're going to make it all right. And largely, we're going to do that by decentralizing. That's different to the question of, could Zuma have been the person to do that? And the reason I don't think Zuma could have been the person to do that is not that I don't think he's smart enough. I think he's plenty smart. I remember Tara Lakota doing a very extended interview with me uh, early on in my time working at the Institute, and he hammered on about this. He said Jacob Zuma, Getle Yitlekisa, was one of the most amazing characters on Robben Island because he led the school of Robben Island. You've got these guys sitting literally on an island, breaking rocks, political prisoners. What else are they going to do? He said, in the daytime, we have to break rocks, but at nighttime, we must learn. Some of the people here are educated, very highly educated. Mandela's a lawyer. Some of us have not had that opportunity. And we have to learn so that by the time we get out of this prison and it's our time to govern, we have the skills and the insights and the information to do that on a proper and legitimate basis. And leadership from the middle was like the biggest buzzword when my sister was doing her MBA at Wharton and, and continues to be the, uh, uh, an important idea. It's hard for someone to say, look, I know this stuff. I'll teach you guys in the prison. Much more effective leadership comes from the guy who says, I don't know. I want to learn. You know. You teach us. And everyone who wants to come and learn, come and learn with me. That was an amazing teacherly. That was an amazing movement that, that Zuma kind of started in a highly oppressive situation. And I think that speaks to his ambition, speaks to his intelligence, as is the fact that Terry Lakota said, no one literally on – Robin Island, Jacob Zuma was the chess champion because that guy figured out the moves, figured out the rules, and then dominated his opponents. He is a smart but, man. But, I don't but think it's that he's not smart enough. I think it's that he doesn't have the character. And the character requirements in South Africa were to identify the problem. The problem was in South Africa's elite. Its elites had the wrong values. The elites within the ANC had the wrong values. The elites within the media were falling for the wrong values. You needed to push back against the smarty pants and say, bugger you guys, I'm really for the people, not just on a one-off issue as he did with AIDS, but on a systematic and, and seriously persistent basis. One where, you, where, where the people don't come and fawn and say, well done, you've given us one battle. One where the people say, we need to win this war. And we need you to but, be our general in that regard. Uh, and that requires losing some battles. He would have had to lose some battles on the basis of policy and not on the basis of, of um, his uh, – he, he would have had to face some humiliations and push through that, just as Boris Johnson has done, just as Margaret Thatcher has done, just as JFK did. JF, I mean, not JFK, uh, Ronald LBJ. Reagan. Ronald Reagan had mm -hmm. to weather the storm of – of, of, of fighting inflation by doing some fiscal discipline and then unemployment going up and things not working out for a couple of years. You have to keep pushing through that, keep charming his way through that, and then the, the chickens come home to roost in I, a good way. I, I, then he takes advantage of that. I don't think that Zuma had the stamina for disses that it requires. And when the disses came that he could tolerate and take the stamina for, they came in the most obvious and boring way 
you're corrupt and that's different to policy. The criticism that you're personally corrupt is very different to the criticism of policy. And he didn't worry about being criticized as, as corrupt because in his view, the king must have power. And the deflection from those criticisms was the most toxic thing. It was exactly the opposite of what he needed to do. It was playing the race card. And while he didn't play the race card personally all that much, his allies played the race through and through. And I think the fact that Zuma allied himself with people who played the race card, like Mo Sheikh, like Tom Moyani, like uh, Blade, that shows that he wasn't listening to what the people needed and that he was listening to what was getting him rewards at the most superficial level, what was avoiding punishment at the most superficial, it shows to me that he had no character. He didn't have the stamina to take the hard disses for long right. enough to make the reform. So Herman's desperate to say something. Herman, speak, speak your soul. Yes, so so I I I don't think I disagree with you. I'm not I'm not in defense of his character at all. Um in the sense that what I what I would say is that I, I think you are in a you Lorimer might have jumped to the other side, but you've now jumped to this side because you're saying exactly what I need you to say to support my argument. In the sense that were the people, the right people, were they to have the, or did, if they had the insight, if the classical liberals and the capitalists of the time had the insight to look at Jacob Zuma and not see a goat herder who's a bit of a joke, and they saw there a goat herder who was the guy who built the or who, who spearheaded the Robin Island School. He was the chess champion on the island. If they acknowledged him as someone worthy of their respect, he would have, I think, found on a very primitive, almost you know, adolescent level the respect that he so desperately craved. And the reason he did not fall with the vacuity of his character taken into account to the quote-unquote right side of history is because the quote-unquote right side of history couldn't be asked to woo him. The people who did woo him were the people who understood his appeal, understood his talents as the vehicle they needed to usurp an out-of-touch pipe-smoking ang uh, you know, anglophiliac weirdo. So the, 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 the point that I'm trying to make is not that he had... Uh, yeah, I might be describing myself there. But the point I'm trying to make is no, not... That is what's amazing about it. You were describing Tom and Becky, but it did almost sound like an autobiography. Yes, Herman Pretorius, the Afrikaans Tabo and Becky. <laughs> Just shoot me if I start yeah, talking about the African Renaissance. But the, the, the point <laughs> I'm making is not that he had character. I'm, I don't think character is a, a it's that he had charisma. It's that he had charisma and that he had the smarts enough to understand that he can... Uh, well, he had the smarts enough to know where he will be loved and where he will be given the respect that he jealously uh, wanted from the Mbekis of the world. So I'm not making an argument for his character. I'm making an argument for his cynicism, his cunning, his pragmatism, his vacuity of morality to have been the perfect vehicle for sensible, pragmatic ideas. I just want to make a point that you guys might be too young to remember this, but uh, Zuma came to power when uh, Lula in Brazil had just come to the end of his uh, presidency. He became president in 2003 in Brazil. And he finished in 2010. And Lula changed Brazil quite a lot. He, uh, and his economy also grew a lot in that first decade. But a lot of it was probably because of um, the commodities boom and so on. I mean, that's 
big reasons. Ah, economy actually grew. But also he started a lot of uh, expanded social grants. He grew the Brazilian middle class and what have you, especially for black Brazilians and uh, mixed race Brazilians and, and that people who've been kind of excluded before. And I remember Kusatu on the left always going on about, you know, Zuma is going to be our Lula. He's going to change things. And I think they, he was kind of this avatar for what people thought a kind of fairly sensible lefty guy because people were terrified of Lula when he came to power. But Lula turned out to be pretty, you know, pretty middle of the road. He wasn't, he didn't go nationalize everything. He, you know, it was pretty centrist uh, economic course. So I think he, Zuma kind of became this avatar for the left. And maybe like uh, France, he talks about how, the ANC turned to Moscow when um, uh, London and the West kind of, uh, you know, chased him into their arms. Yeah, exactly. So maybe in a way that's what uh, Mbeki and the ANC did to Zuma. You know, they they dissed him and he found the left. And I just want to make one more point: is that they were always talking about Zuma's Lula moments, and Lula just spent some time in prison. So maybe Zuma has finally got his Lula moment. Yeah, I was, I was just about well, to say uh, that. Right? Is yeah. he, he going <laughs> to yeah. come out of? Uh, and Lula's ahead in the opinion polls in Brazil. Yeah, he's going to win if he runs next year. Yeah. The one thing I want to point out where Zuma and Lula is different is Lula was an actual ideologue. Lula believed in what he was selling. Uh, he, he was a Canadian when he was about 12. Exactly. So he, he had left a socialist ideology as you know part of his breakfast. The point I'm making is that Zuma did not have that ideology, that he had a vacuum of ideology, and that were the people... Of, on, of our political persuasion uh, creative enough and smart enough to see in Zuma not a Lula but a Lyndon Baines Johnson, someone who understands power rather than policy, they could have turned him to the right direction. Um, so, so I think yeah, that's okay, a so distinction between again. Lula and Zuma. Uh, uh, let, 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 me, let, let, me, let me let me go again, Gabriel, if I, if I may. Yeah. So there's an alternative version of Zuma. It's like Zuma being slapped by a Pakistani goddess. Just there's many hands so, for Pakistani goddess. Uh, they are so, gentle and kind. Don't worry. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't know if Pakistani is right because Pakistan is mostly Muslim. Pakistan is mostly Muslim. But anyway, um, so here's another view of Zuba. He is a guy who joined the struggle because it was what was going on at the time, right? You know, it was it was how, how one could stop, you know, make something more of oneself without yeah. being basically a goat herder forever. And that, especially after 94, his life was dominated by a need to get resources. Because if anyone has followed Jacob Zuma's finances even a little bit, you can see that it has basically the same pattern. His finances are like a giant bucket with a thousand holes in it. They're just constantly is just leaking money. And he has to constantly get more stuff, right? Like, I, I don't know, you know. Uh, this is the Are thing you that saying that's why he's in prison? Because he, he doesn't have to pay for the meals or accommodation? <laughs> well, so we can't, we can't rule it out. But so, so, so look at Nkandla, right? Nkandla cost, what, 200 and something million rand? 256 like or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's garbage. <laughs> it really doesn't look that great. It's not a great place. You know, some of it looks a bit shoddily built. I think he could have gotten yeah. a lot more money with that. And that 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 sums up his finances. He could have got a lot more for his money, yeah. Yeah, for his money, for, for our money, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so so in this view of him, he had to always go on with the ideology and with the people who would be completely okay with him completely looting the state. And that side of the aisle 
are the socialists because socialism grants you more power to 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 loot the state coffers because it increases the state's power and in this way if zuma was to fulfill his central goal of making sure that him and his family was educated and clothed and fed and whatever for the next for the next year Flushed. deluxe yeah exactly he needed to go in with the left because they were the only ones who were willing to write him a blank check. So this yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's you... right. And I want right. to, again, push push it a bit further. So, and I do think it's an interesting, it's an interesting problem, right? Um, I consider myself a radical centrist uh, in the sense that I think that there are situations where you need more government and i think there's situations where you need less government and i think that's a pretty radical idea in a world where most people are either committed to always having more government or always having less government across the universe wherever you find yourself um, fair enough i just want to say tony blair called he want his you know rhetoric back okay um well radical centrism I, I didn't follow him. I, I, I kind of, I kind of get it from 1870s French politics, uh, which Lef I think came Lefty, before Lefty Gabriel from the from the 2008 crash is feeling very uncomfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, right. So it's true. I was, I was an Occupy kind of lefty. Um, so, I'd, so, so I'm hesitant to make. Which is to say, Nicholas's point can sound a little bit like this. If you've got a, a Machiavellian, selfish, charismatic leader who in particular is corrupt and wants to use high office to gain personal property, then he's always going to be lured by the left rather than the right because the left are always going to offer more goodies uh, than the right. And this is not just the left in terms of government policy pr programs. This is also in terms of the kinds of capitalists or, or crony capitalists who want to get in tight with big government programs, private-public partnerships, and so on, that make room for pork barrel spending. That drives up the patronage network, and you're, and you're at the, at the yes. peak of the patronage network. And we talk about patronage networks a lot on this channel. So I do see that Nicholas, I do see Nicholas's argument. I'm kind of hesitant. I'm sort of racking my brain for right-wing leaders. I kind of can, in other words, I can see a world, not South Africa, I can see some country where the capitalists say something like this, you know, your families in this business or whatever will just give you these kickbacks, but in exchange, we want you to uh, drive through non-racial policy. We want you to uh, liberalize labor relations. We want you to... I think, I think uh, Pinochet in Chile is probably a pretty yes. good example of a right-wing yes. corrupt person. A right-wing corrupt yes. guy, Pinochet. There we go. So, And Paul Kruger, yeah, ironically, yeah. to an extent, so, extent. Yes, the jam tax. There, I, I, I know Afrikaners old enough to remember the jam tax, <laughs> and uh, and they were very irritated by it. Yeah, it was a very sweet deal. <laughs> yeah, he, it was. It was just personal kickbacks in exchange for a bit of rubbish. Anyway, that's some eighteen nineties uh, <laughs> South African political history. <laughs> and so we're going back even beyond uh, Salt Blakey. It's nice. It's a nice episode of Two Crickets. But so here's so here's where I want to push past even further than what Nicholas said. I think that there it is it does seem generally true that if not always but generally there'll be an extra pressure from the left because there's more opportunity for kickbacks when you're saying hey can we have more government programs I think in particular in South Africa the challenge that we faced in the mid 2000s was one 
of character. I think that it's true to say, again, generally, that there are a lot of moments in history where any charismatic politician will do. Uh, you just need to get them in the right sort of sweet spot, thinking the right things with the right people and understanding how ultimately this is going to shore up their power, which is what they're after, and their respect, which is what you give them in order to put them in the place you want them to see. You want to see them. But I think South Africa was in this special situation. And it was in a special situation uh, in the 1990s. And, and it was a special thing that Nelson Mandela had such personal integrity. I think it was similarly in a special situation in the 2000s. Uh, Tabu Mbeki came from a, a, a well-off enough family that, and, you know, Mualetsi, his brother, has done well in his own regard. I'm not saying they came from, like, plush deluxe life, but relatively speaking, they were doing well. Uh, they didn't have to feel insecure, uh, and they could connect into a, a new business reality. Zuma didn't have that. Uh, a little bit like at an unprecedented level. So in a way, he faced a different test to Mandela. Mandela's test was very harsh because you had a real consortium of militants who were eager on driving through the most radical policies that they possibly could. And I think there's an interesting story to tell about how Mandela gets out of jail and kind of sees the light. And sees the light because he's got the character to see it. And I think that Zuma had a different pressure. There wasn't as much militism. In militantism, I'm not using that word properly. Anyway, this is like before Malema is really a big deal, before the EFF, murder rates are less... 20% less than what they are today. Uh, uh, random strikes it weren't happening 10 times every day. The country was much more stable. So he didn't have the same militant pressure from the ultra left. But he did have the special pressure of being a rags to, to riches kind of guy. And if we agree with the one of the opening premises that a real centrist coming after Tabu and Becky would have to be a man of the people type. Then you see the little Venn diagram overlap that I'm talking about. You'd need a guy who was relatively poor and was relatively like chip, maybe chip on his shoulder about that. And at the same time, wasn't prepared to let politics become a route to super economic personal profits. So you needed that level of character. You needed integrity. I don't think that you could have had a great president after Tabo Mbeki that was at all personally corrupt. And since we all agree that Zuma was personally corrupt, I think we take away the kind of wooing that was open to the centrists and the uh, and, and whatnot. And here's a way of, of, of saying why I think that matters. It might be that we're exaggerating the extent to which the centrists or the people in the relative right of the ANC alienated and dissed Zuma on the basis that they thought he was just a go-turning peasant. It might be that they did try. It might be, I know people that spoke with Zuma back in the day. I know that we spoke with Zuma back in the day. Um, I think that there were people trying quite seriously to give 
to to inject the right ideas or at least put the right information in front what, of Zuma's what, eyes. So, but if they didn't also have a bribe to offer on top of that, it wasn't enough. And if it, a politician yes. requires a bribe to become a great politician, maybe that works somewhere else, but it doesn't work <laughs> in South Africa, not since 1994 and not for the next 20 years because we are in a special situation and that does not address our situation. I, and so I, I come I, down I back to, to the view. That Jacob Zuma could never have been a great politician. I have to, I have to counter the counter. Lorimer made the point that fundamentally undermines the point you are making now, uh, Gabriel, is the fact that Zuma was Lorimer. awful. Zuma was awful with money. The only thing the capitalists had to do was promise him the same or better of a sustainable level of bribery. Now, I'm not so, advocating uh, for, uh, <laughs> of bribery. IRA, I am from the journalist list, says, IRA advocates bribing politicians. No, but I, I, I'm just saying. I can just from see Marius looking more and more bemused. Uh, <laughs> from, a from, from a purely Machiavellian, cynical point of view, the only thing, the capitalist, the capitalist's should have done or could have done that would have fundamentally altered the trajectory of the country and the ideological trajectory of Jacob Zuma was take the time to convince him that his personal benefit would be greater through a form of crony capitalism than through a form of socialist segment, you know, creaming off the top. Zuma, was not a, Zuma isn't a socialist, he's a crony capitalist. Yes, yeah. no, 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 but the problem is he allowed people. The problem is crony capitalism. No, yeah, exactly. he, no, no, no. Crony no, no, capitalism. No, no. He allowed. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. I think, no, no, I no, think no, there's on. something to, to what Herman's saying here. I think there's something to what Herman's saying. I, I just quickly and want to is... complete my point here. I, 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 and then over to you, Nick. No, uh, the, 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 the thing is, Zuma installed ideologues who gave him the validation he wanted. He handed over control of policy to socialists. So it's not a form of crony capitalism. Zuma himself was a crony capitalist. But the problem was because on a character, you know, character ego level, he received the validation and the acknowledgement he got from hardcore leftist ideologues. He gave them the policy levers. So he might have been a crony capitalist, but the country didn't suffer because of his crony capitalism. It suffered because he handed over the levers of policy to the left. So what I'm trying to say is that he would have had his blind spot for validation could have been exploited without him handing over the levers of policy to the left. And that would have made him the LBJ of no, South but, Africa. But, let, but let's make this more precise, no, right? So what we're saying, what we're saying back to agree. that, I just want to clarify this. What we're saying, no, yeah. what I'm saying back to that is I agree with you that you need the esteem side. You need capitalists esteeming Zuma. I'm suggesting that maybe some of that did happen. I remember some of that happening, certainly after he became president, not after he was fired. There was huge alienation and there was the rape trial and he was the worst thing in the world. But after he became president, big business came out to say, actually, we think Zoom is a nice guy. And I can show you the Business Day articles to affirm that. Now, you're, now the point too is... Too little what too was, late. Yes, exactly. What was going on in 2005? What was going on in 2004? And I don't really have the information to back it up. But what I'm saying is, in a way, it doesn't matter. Even if they do, even if you do give Jacob Zuma the respect that he's looking for, the prestige and the claim and the and the and the basic and the wealth, respect and that the he's wealth. looking for, 
You also need to give him the wealth. And I don't see how you can give Jacob Zuma the wealth, especially because he is so incompetent in the ways of compound interest without doing it actually illegally. And I'm suggesting oh, that it's yes, that weakness. Yes. It's that weakness. It's And that's the asymmetry, right? So I think that this is bringing out an interesting point. What is South Africa's nightmare? Is South Africa's nightmare socialism? Not today. Jacob Zuma tables expropriation without compensation before Parliament in 2017 when his back is against the wall, when the riots have already come out saying Zuma must fall. He does not push that idea nearly as much as Ramaphosa. He does not establish an ad hoc committee, a committee to change the... Ideologue. He is much more, not just he in terms of his person, South Africa from 2008 until 2017 is not a, on a socialist program. It's on a crony capitalist program. It's on a program of expanding so, by... So this is exactly where I want, to, when I, when I want to come in, right? Can we say, though, that crony capitalism is actually better than socialism? So I'll give no. you... There's lots of countries all over Asia where... And China is quite a good example of this, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or at least some parts exactly. of China. Where you have massive amounts of corruption. You have close relationships between certain massive corporations and, and, and uh, government. But they build the road, right? They, build, yes. they actually do build the road. And when you get to what we're moving into now, uh, as we see with, with Ramaphosa's many, many uh, uh, policy moves, uh, is we are moving into a far more socialistic thing. Obviously, we're still going to have some of the bad stuff of crony capitalism in South Africa going forward, but we are moving into something that's even more explicitly socialist. And that if we had stayed in a world where we had more efficient crony capitalism, which sounds like an oxymoron, but I think that it, I think okay, that it let's is take your point. Let's take your point. Right. It's more it's, it's, efficient. It's, okay, no, no, I take the point. But here's, but let's get back to Zuma. Why, why is it that in parts of East Asia, relatively uh, crony capitalist countries, lots of government intervention countries, have nevertheless had great economic growth. The, the potholes are actually filled. The, the, you know, it takes an extra 20%, but the work actually gets done. Why is that different to South Africa? In my estimation, one of the basic expl explanations, and there are a few, but one of the most basic ones, is that they don't have a problem that we do have. And the problem that we do have is when the job isn't done, and in particular when the job isn't done by an entity that's involved with government, either government directly or an entity involved with government, the race card is played in the faces of those who level yes. criticism. No, that's right. And Jacob Zuma, more than anyone, the, the 2000, let's just go back to the 2009 election, right? Jacob Zuma has now won the nomination of the presidency at Polokwane, and it's been... One of the most exciting things I've ever watched on live TV. That Polokwane thing, I was like 18. Yes, it blew my hair back. He he gets it. It was surprising. It was like tentative. It was also he was the most likely winner, but it was really, we were all on the edge of our seats. He gets it. And now the question is, what is it going to do to the ANC at the polls? 
because there is this credible credible evidence that this guy is corrupt, and that hasn't been the case before with Mbeki or Mandela. There is also this credible evidence that this guy is personally corrupt. So maybe it doesn't seem to me like he raped Kwesi in the in the legal sense, but there does seem to be something strange about the fact that he's having sex with this young woman who's like got a personal yeah, right. and his explanation about it, she wanted it, she was wearing a short skirt, I had a shower after the thing, I'm the head of the HIV thing. Let's not exaggerate yeah. how great Jacob Zuma was on HIV. HIV. The shower thing came from that. So Jacob Zuma is like a hairy character, and it seems like him as the leader of the ANC might result in a big-time punishment at the polls. And the question is, how is the ANC going to campaign? How is the media going to treat this? How is this going to go forward? And the DA says, we've got a very simple slogan here towards the end, stop Zuma, stop corruption. And the response coming out of that was, if you say this, you're a racist. And Zuma had the option to stand up and say, guys, if this country's going to work, you can defend me, you can attack me, but if you're going to defend me, do not defend me on the basis that my critics must be racist. Because if we do that, we are going to savage the gains that have been made in the last 15 years, it's, and we're going to set ourselves up on a path towards doom. And he knew exactly what was going on. And he knew it from 2003 when Mo Sheikh, on his behalf, Accused Bulalani yes. and Muka of being in Pimpi. Jacob Zuma no, knew no. that the race card was being played on his behalf, and that was ex and the race card is exactly the reason our civil service is so much is so much more crap than the civil service in East Asia. The race card is exactly the reason that our crony capitalism is so crap compared to the crony capitalism in East Asia. I I I, so I, I think it was someone who was personally wanna... not corrupt and someone who was personally the only two character points. What I'm saying is. You don't need a guy with great character in every regard. You need someone who's charismatic and so on. But for South Africa to be run by someone, by a true reformer leader, you need someone who's not willing to let anyone else play the race card on his behalf and who's not willing to be personally corrupt. And Zuma lacked both I, of those. And on that basis, I, I say he couldn't I have been. Morris, I want to get Morris in here because we are. And then me. And then me. Yeah. And then I want to ask you as another counterfactual. Say Tabon Becky wasn't uh, too clever by half and listened to people who told him, look, you are going to lose to Jacob Zuma in 2007 for Laquani. Why don't you put another candidate to ever fucking uh, flipping, sorry, Matthews Poza or... <laughs> yes, Matthews uh, Poza. Tokyo Sekhwale or Terra Lakota, even Mokotante. whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he can... Well, no, Matlante was a Zuma guy by then already, but... Um, and he can... I mean, he'll be your guy, but you just stand back. You can tell him what to do from your house, whatever. And let let them be the candidate. Do you Probably think there was ever a possibility that uh, Mbeki is the candidate could have won? Not Mbeki himself, because he actually lost by a lot. Zuma got six percent of the votes in that that election. I mean, it was what eight hundred votes between the two of them, which is quite a lot when nearly four thousand are being cast. So was there ever mm. a possibility that somebody else could have beaten Zuma, or by I'd say from when he became deputy president of the ANC in nineteen ninety seven, was basically an inevitability that he was going to become. President of the NC, then president of the country 10 years later. No, I, 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 I think I, it could have been someone else. And Becky needed to step back and give his full nomination to someone else. But I, yeah, I, I still think he would have been still running things from, you know, still from uh, behind the scenes and stuff. Because if he'd won in 2007, you uh, couldn't have been, you would have to have stepped down as president of South Africa in 2009, but he would still be in president of the NC. And that no, would no, be no, the whole that, that option wouldn't have worked. I'm saying if Becky yeah. stood down at Polokwane, Give, says, give Matthew Poses a go. The votes could have gone in Poses' direction. He would have had to call that a little bit sooner than he did. Becky's mm. 
attempt to seek a third I, I, term in the ANC as leader of the party was a very crazy idea and it was a terrible yes thing. it was it was a disastrous thing that could never have worked but the point that I, I think we, we really need to go back further to to the mid 2000 2005 when Zuma was kicked out when he was kicked low that was the moment when he could have been guided um, or when, when I am making the case that he was uh, uh, he, he could have been captured, captured. To, to use uh, we, you know we, a, a very very you know blatant cynical term. Um, but the, the the thing that I, I I want to almost you know point out here is that Zuma and Musi Maimane are much closer as politicians in recent South African history than Musi Maimane and anyone and Jacob Zuma and anyone because they were pragmatists. They were pragmatists that had the popular appeal that had they been guided sensibly, they could have become vessels for, if not greatness, then competence. So the problem Herman, that we Herman, have- are you are you desperate to, to, to drive me onto the other side? Because you've just <laughs> made the argument that has crystallized in my mind why I was originally wrong. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, the, 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 the thing I'm serious. Please, let me just complete this point. The fact of the matter is that um, uh, my Mane did not have the gifts of strategic, does not have the gifts of strategic intelligence, um, tactical mood, um, a, ability to relate to people that Zuma had. But the thing that they do have in common is an ideological void that could, on a person level, have been weaponized for the fulfillment and alignment of their thinking to one way or the other. Now, I, I, so, so the, 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 the fact that uh, uh, Zuma is terrible with money, the only thing that the crony capitalists had to promise him was that they would be better at giving him a slice of the growing economic pie. The character point, I just think, does not bear out at all. Because if it was an important point of character, then we have to buy into the notion that the Guptas really did have a significant effect on the trajectory of South Africa's economy. And I don't think that's a feasible point to make. The game was lost on two points. Number one, when the capitalists did not understand that Zuma has more staying power than any other politician in the ANC when he was embarrassed by Mbeki kicking him out of the deputy presidency. And number two, when Zuma found the validation and loyalty and appreciation that he so craved from the left in exchange for control over policy. Those were the two moments that Jacob Zuma became the corrupt leftist, socialist, populist, Gupta promoting void that he ultimately was. But if one okay. of those Next. two had okay. gone okay. a different it. direction, it would Adam have been I'm, a very, very different 10 years. You asking someone to stop speaking is very rich, sir. No, I, I agree. I agree, Gabriel. It's only me who's going to use the mute. It's only me who's going to use the mute button here. So, 
Herman, you just made what sounded to me like an argument that I've heard made on Lucy Marmani's behalf all the time for, for Zuma. I, I mean, you made that explicitly. Um, and it's it's one that I despise hearing about Musi Maimani. Musi was a talented guy, and he had in his hands South Africa's biggest opposition party and mass support from the party. He even had some people in the media who were a little bit warm to him, although they were a lot too wanted to undermine him and destroy him. And he originally had a group of people around him who were willing to tell him hard truths, who were willing to criticize him when he did something wrong, who were willing to give him advice and make up for the fact that he didn't have that much experience. But what he did was he handed over an enormous amount of the party's power to megalomaniacs and flatterers who praised him at every turn. And that was a very deliberate choice. That wasn't a, you know, he, 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 had, he had these paths before him, but he chose the path of easy flattery and... Uh, praise and all these things, the same things that Zuma, that in a lot of ways Zuma did. He chose this path because it was easier and because it had a quicker payoff. I think Gabriel made this point in our original discussion on this on Wednesday. You, there, there's two types of, of insane, vain people who go on to become leaders, right? There's those who are like interested in getting praise now, interested in getting money now, interested in everything happening now. And then there's those lunatics who are still completely obsessed with their own glory, but are prepared to accept a legacy that comes after they've been leader. And Zuma and Musi were both in the former category. And that kind of leader is very rarely a successful one. Sometimes if the battle of ideas is pushing in the right direction, they might do some good stuff um, because they bend to the popular will. And if the popular will is like a really good thing, then they'll just do that. But if the battle of ideas is blowing in the other direction, as it was in a lot of ways, especially in 2008 when the financial crash happened and there were all these socialist calls. Zuma was always going to go with it. Let me make my and final I think, point. My final uh, hold point. On. My final point. No, Gabriel, Adam, I, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I think that, seriously, I think that the, the, the point can be taken back to UK politics, which, which Hadamon likes, in regards to Winston Churchill. So Winston Churchill was an interesting character because he flipped from right to left to right. You know, he yeah, he was seemed, all over the place. He seemed like a weather vane. He seemed like a glory boy. And in his letters oh, and in what, his biographies. What was that wonderful quote from him? Uh, it, it's a certain kind of person to rat, but it's a different kind of person to re-rat, which is go from one party to another. <laughs> yes. And then go back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he really was the worst in that regard. But what made him, and and he, Winston Churchill himself said this line, um, after you know, because he, as a young man, not unlike Zuma, uh, he was involved in battle in the machinations of uh, of war, to a much uh, I think more serious extent really than Zuma. But Zuma was like a pretty serious guy. I think he was very seriously involved in 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 the MKs. Uh, tough, tough existence. And, uh, and Churchill showed great physical courage. And he said to someone at some point, you know, my problem is that I, uh, I do this for the glory. I do this to be seen. I want to be seen. And he saw that in himself. And I, and I, 
I grant Zuma that he might have seen some of that in himself too, that he might have seen that in his younger years, part of what made it so exciting to go away from being a goatherd to being a revolutionary was not just the appeal of upward mobility, not just the appeal of like a broad, broader kind of respectability, but it was also the appeal of being so tough, so manly, that in the moment you're prepared to do something where you might risk death torture, humiliation, long-term imprisonment, and so on. I think that physical courage is a very important thing to distinguish from moral courage because it's the ultimate extreme kind of short-term thing, right? Physical courage is really like in the moment. Here and now, do you have the guts in this very moment to do what you need to do to be great in the eyes of, I had a moment of physical courage. My fiance saw a rat and she jumped onto the table and she'll be very terrified very terrified to hear the story. A rat or a re-rat? It, it, it was an original rat with four legs and a tail. And she's usually quite tough and Russian, but she it just some lizard brain thing triggered in her and she jumped on the table. And ah, there comes in manly Gabriel to impress her with his ability to pick it up with his, with his naked hands and deposit it in the garden and then wash his hands for coronavirus purposes. Have a and, chat uh, with it about the esteem economy. And then get on with his life. <laughs> So physical, so physical courage can is is super immediate, and then there's this courage of like, can I do a little thing, and it's going to cost me for a minute, but I'll get rewarded in two minutes. And you see that in the speeches of Zuma and of Maimoni, they are prepared for a moment to say a hard truth and then wind it back and give it a bit of glory applause. The real test, I think, of of, of greatness in general, is to make that longer investment in in a, in a kind of moral courage. And I think that I, I just, I think that Zuma has, has for all, for all of my, my own interest in finding the case to be true. I think that he lacks that. And, 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 and I suppose that's a point where I'd just, conceptually like to move on to i think the broader view but my colleague herman is probably not gonna uh, be very nice to me in the office if i don't give no, him no, the no, final no, no, no. he has been wanting to say something well, it's a good thing we don't have yeah, an okay. office anymore <laughs> yeah 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 no, no, but, 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 but it's fine. i i i let me make three i think boris is left in disgust <laughs> No, he's, he's but I, he just went to the kitchen. <laughs> three or four points. Point number one is um, not as an excuse, but I don't fully believe what I've been saying for the last hour. But but I, I'm trying <laughs> to convince myself. But yeah, it's not an excuse because I, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah. So point point number two. Um, I think the very example that you mentioned, Gabriel, of Zuma being the best chess player on Robben Island falls to my side ever so slightly um, because it shows that he can, by necessity of a game that he clearly mastered, think two, three, four steps mm. in advance. Mm. A key difference between Zuma and Maimane is that point. I don't think Maimane yes. ever had the strategic or tactical insight to see beyond beyond the immediate win, where Zuma did. And I think the last 12 years of legal wranglings to and fro go mm. to that point. Yeah, I agree with that. 
So he had a longer term vision than someone like Maimani, and that's a key distinction that I would draw. Were he to be able to, you know, be convinced that the key strategic interest for moves from now, for his moral lack of anything, or of everything, actually, I think he could have been convinced on a chess player level that it would be better to have a growing economy to loot than a shrinking economy to control for his own personal betterment. So when you make the point of his lack of character, I agree with you. So when you make the point that you need to be able to see longer term, I slightly disagree with you because you bring in a moral dimension where I'm willing to settle for a cynically pragmatic one. Oh, no, I, I don't think, think that's that... a point of disagreement. I, I oh, think okay. that's a point okay. of convergence. And, and the point of okay. convergence there, a nice philosopher's term is something like enlightened self-interest, which is something yeah. that comes out of the enlightenment. And the thought here is, you know, okay, so how do we talk about morality absent God in the 1600s? Uh, various people come up with different views. One of the views goes something like this. In the long term, self-interest converges with social interest. And insofar as that's true, Adam Smith's theory of model, moral sentiments holds. Uh, this is the logic of the market. And so yes. I, I think it is the case that the more steps you are able to look ahead in your selfish planning, the more likely yes. it is that your selfish plan is going to serve the the the, the greater good. Um, I, think I don't you, think. So, 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 so I think so you've just I think you've just made my argument and concluded it better than I could. So with that, <laughs> I yield. So, so so I just want to get the so Gabriel, you want to move us to something very slightly different. But Morris, you've you've been watching this all with various looks of horror on your face. Your you you have the last word, sir. Yes, yes, it's like it's following the Lord Mayor's show now. Flip, it's a bit, uh, <laughs> the Lord Mayor's show. Tell me that reference. I don't get it. No, just like when the, uh, like the Lord Mayor came in the show with the, uh, you know, jugglers and flipping uh, prancing ponies and, and elephants. And then now you got to come with your like stand-up routine for ten minutes or whatever the case is. You know, you've like, memorized yeah. a very nice poem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. There was a young man from, or there's a young woman from Ealing, blah, blah, blah. You know? So, mm. Um, mm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think Jacob Zuma, he, he, he would have, I mean, he had the possible, I mean, it also comes down to why was he inevitable? Was Jacob Zuma or somebody like him inevitable? And it also depends. I mean, do you, I mean, you don't say, I mean, is, it kind of comes to like a microcosm of the, like the grand, uh, uh, the great man theory of history. You know, would would Jacob Zuma have emerged? Uh, you know, what was his emergence inevitable, or were there certain confluence of factors which led to it? I think that's it. And I think, I mean, I think the great man uh, theory of history is nonsense. I think, um, I mean, like it's not inevitable that Winston Churchill would have become the person he was, or well, in no. the cases, you know. I mean, yeah, they, they probably would have been still successful. I mean, there was. I mean, Adolf Hitler could have become a great painter or Winston Churchill could have been a good, I don't know, whatever he was good at apart from politics or whatever the case is. I don't know why I'm talking right. about Hitler. Things are really going pay in this uh, podcast. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I think there was a confluence of factors that gave us Jacob Zuma and 
Just uh, and I think there is a possibility it could have been somebody different. It could have been good for the country, but he wasn't. And obviously, it's all fun to talk about counterfactuals, but we are stuck where we are now. And look, I mean, I kind of feel sorry for the guy in in a way. I mean, he's obviously been very badly advised. That's why he's sitting in jail at the moment. You know, and he's obviously, I think he was obviously vulnerable. That's why he managed to become captured by people like the Guptas and the Sheikhs going in before that. I remember reading, uh, I can't remember where I saw the reference, but um, somebody was talking about, this was in the early 90s, just when the people were coming back from exile, and Jacob Zuma was mentioned uh, by somebody, I can't remember, I think it was like one of these old white lefties in Durban who, you know, put Jacob Zuma up for a while, and said all the guy had, basically, was a radio to listen to the news. He didn't have anything else, because he'd been in jail, and then he'd been in exile. He had no chance to build up a career, or any kind of earnings, or whatever. you, and he also, he had already however many kids by then so it was really under financial pressure so it's not i mean it's you know it's uh we can see why why the guy fell into the ways he did and was i mean the bribery things about jacob zoom goes back into the 90s they're not new things yeah. and you know with uh the guptas also maybe a different kind of person could have stood against but i think uh, and maybe that's why the nc is also how it is because a lot of guys came back from exile you know didn't have much and there was easy for them to be captured by various interests, whether foreign or domestic, whatever the case is. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, these counts, I mean, I love these counterfactuals, but we are, we are now. And Jacob Zuma, he has, I mean, the last decade is not a myth. I mean, it definitely happened. And yes. he could have been something, maybe he could have been the Lula of South Africa, but he's not. And I don't know if we'll, and also, I mean, Lula is also a bit overrated, but I mean, if you would rather have had Lula than Jacob Zuma, to be honest. But uh, yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if you guys have, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I just want, I just want to say before we before we move on to to Gabriel's next thing that uh, one one day we need to do a show where I speak up in defense of the great man theory of history. But that being said, Gabriel. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the good thing the good thing about that is the moment will come when it will be ready for you to speak up for the great man theory of history, Nick. <laughs> the circumstances will be right for that two crickets episode to occur right so this is interesting i think i think we've got a funny idea about great man theory in play which is worth reflecting on so great man theory usually goes something like this societies muddle along and most people are quite busy and they are busy you know fixing the hole in the roof and getting a crust of bread on the table at the night time and getting their kids to school and on top of that, there's this sort of superstructure of politics. And on top of that, there come these individuals with such immense capacity for charisma, for influence, for chess playing, Machiavellian operations, and they change the world. And had they not come along, the world would have been totally different. And great man theory in this regard was the dialectical opposite to Marxist materialism. So, Marxist materialism... Way, I'm going to defend that version of it. <clears throat> Marxist materialism was the theory that you've got these sort of group-level conflicts between owners of property and laborers, between people of certain right. nationalities or ethnicities or races the and other the races and so on. forces of history, I think they're usually called by the Marxists. The, big, the materialist dialectic. And... Whatever you see on the news, whatever personalities are being exchanged, 
is is quite irrelevant. It's all going to be more of the same, and it's going to be crony capitalist. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be ugly. And the only people that really make a difference are the people who shoot the the enforcers of property rights systems. Uh, so that's their one exception. The only kinds of great men that they are are soldiers for the revolution, and you need lots of them because you need lots of bullets. So they're not. It's not one great man. It's not Hitler. It's not Churchill. It's not any particular character. It's it's a whole group. So I, I think we maybe are using. I think Morris is maybe using great man theory in a, in a slightly different way. But I do think that part of what's interesting about this conversation is that it brings out this the extent to which we ask ourselves how much of our lives have been shaped by the decisions and inclinations of one man. To what extent this quit the, the the debate was framed as could Zuma have been a great president? But in in attempting to answer that question, you you we have found ourselves supposing, to a large extent, that he was a great president in the sense of great man theory, where great is not a, a moral claim; it's just a claim of what he chose to do ended up Important, being of, yeah. of great national a claim of significance. Right. So I think. Against uh, maybe, uh, I, I I think in a way, counterfactual conversations like this um, do give people a sense of why great man theory matters. It also gives a sense, I think, of why it matters to follow politics as it's happening. I'm sitting here with three people, three colleagues, who uh, uh, more than half of whom were teenagers at the time, uh, and uh, all of whom can remember at the time following the press and forming judgments about what's going on. And I think that's an interesting thing to remember going forward because we're sitting with our new great man and the, the cut and thrust of it is worth following because it amounts to something very important. I think the the the, the other thing that I want to sort of say in favor of this kind of counterfactual conversation is that it doesn't bear the appeal of, of coming down with a, a solid truth. I think Herman made some very excellent points in favor of the thought that Zuma had the aptitude to uh, inject for, for, our listeners, for our listeners who can't see, Herman did a little fist pump at that, that acknowledgement. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> the aptitude. I, I maintain... Uh, that there, that the, that the qualifications of aptitude are such that he lacked the aptitude to inject the to play the right kind of chess game, um, and 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 that if he really had as much aptitude as 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 as, as Herman thinks, then it wouldn't have required flirtation or seduction by the capitalists. He would have figured it out uh, just on the basis of the general information that he was getting. What that it's I think very well put. Uh, better to loot from a growing economy than to control and suction a, a shrinking one. Uh, that being said, I th you know, I think that there are, are good reasons to think both that Zuma in Planet 2 might have been a, a great South African president and that on any remotely close modal alternative, he would have been destructive because he allowed race baiters to go along with him and didn't understand what the battle of ideas required of him at the time. But I think that what's what's exceptional about this kind of conversation talking about Zoom is that he's someone that all of our listeners will have 
had ideas about and thought about and followed for the last 12 years. And all of these things we're saying about Zuma also apply to all of us. The counterfactual applies to personal history and particularly just the intersection between personal history and political history. And we, we kind of have set out not to have a limited time. So if we're going to go into a kind of chapter two, not as long as chapter one, but <laughs> if we're going to go into a bit of a chapter two, um, I think it might be something like this. When did you first decide that it is important to vocally, publicly criticize Jacob Zuma? I think everyone... Almost everyone in South Africa has made that choice at some point. It's it's such a majority. It's it really is a thing most people have done. And some people have done it sooner, some people have done it later. And I think that it's a kind of interesting personal bit of kind of factualism. Because for sure, if we'd all done it sooner, if we'd all done it before he came became president, we'd be living in a different South Africa today. And I think with a high level of confidence. We could say that if we'd all been vocal against Zuma in 2008, 2009, in the election, if people had voted against him, then with higher level of confidence, we would have been in a better South Africa than we are today, and better in very material ways. Most people our age and younger are unemployed. Uh, you know, at least four million children before the plague were malnourished. Five percent of people who started grade one when Zuma became president finished with a matric pass rate after he'd retired, only 5%. His era was not just a lost decade. If you look at the ramping up of public debt from 23% of GDP to just about 100% of GDP, that has created macroeconomic conditions, which on the Saab's own estimate mean that we've got a lost two decades because the next decade to come is not going to be on the kind of growth trajectory that we expected because when the government's debt is not is in a junk status. The, the private banks are also in a junk status. That means they can't lend at an efficient rate, and that means that new businesses can't readily be established. This is a very serious, different world that we're living in to the one where we had all stood up against Zuma. And I don't know, maybe it's old hat, maybe it's a bit trite, but I like the idea of when it ends, remember where you began. And I'm curious to know if there were particular moments that triggered you guys to think, well, maybe it's not so cool. Maybe I'll get a bit of a diss. Maybe I'll actually suffer something to do with property or prestige or power if I, in my school environment or in my work environment or in my public life or whatever it is, if I, if I speak out against Zuma publicly, maybe I'll get in a bit of trouble. But then something broke the back of that and you thought, hell's teeth, no, I've got to do this. Can I go first? Because I think I've got the most boring answer. Yeah. So I come from a very... DA family. Grandfather was in the Progressive Federal Party. My father's in the DA. My aunt is in the DA. And from the moment I was politically conscious, somewhere in my mid-teens, I've thought that the ANC is bad and that uh, the leaders they voiced upon the country are bad. And that started with Tapo Becky. Now, I've got a more nuanced view since then. Um, but for me, it was just completely natural. I, I before I could vote, I was standing outside voting stations encouraging people to vote against Zuma. And uh, that was really just because it came naturally. And yeah, and, and I, don't, I don't regret any of that, of course, but um, 
there was no there was no single heroic come to life come to jesus moment so to speak i love it life. so the guy who thinks zoom is a genius also always opposed Zuma. i think that's correct. very interesting that's that's correct <laughs> so uh, if, if if i might go next um one thing that I would note just for in, in, in general um, is in, in, in the last six months or so, I've really become a convert to uh, a school of thought that Gabriel has championed within the Institute uh, of the esteem economy. Uh, and to, to such an extent that I think um, the esteem economy and critical race theory are probably the two dominating forces that will... I've never heard Gabriel that, speak about the esteem economy ever. <laughs> I mean, you re you should get out more. Um, but uh, the, these two ideas will dominate the next fifty years. So, so that's the the the, I, I, the institute is a very weird esteemed team to judge. Um, it's because <laughs> it's very difficult to understand when you will get prestige. Will you get prestige when you go with the reigning school of thought within the institute, or will you get prestige when you go against it? Uh, will you get prestige when you have beautiful ideas but no, you know, deliverables? Or will you get prestige when your ideas are fatuous but you have deliverables? So, so it's 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 a constant challenge to to judge this minor Steve economy that we're in. And I must say, mm. this tonight's discussion uh, really really manifests that. I remember. Um, a conversation in 2010 uh, that I had with a fellow first-year student of mine a year after the the election. Uh, my first election, um, I was it was actually 2000, uh, 2011, the municipal elections. As far as I can remember, I, I was born in July 91, so I, I just missed by a few months um, the April, May or whatever election of 2009. Um, but I remember being a DA person, just uh, I remember in grade two being a DP person for no other reason uh, than that was the that was the family I was in. Um, not that my family were terribly political, but that was my point of reference. But I do remember in 1994, when I was not yet three, um, reenacting the election in front of the television screen with my soft toys and my sister's dolls playing election, election. Um, and the weird thing is my favorite toy, a little lion uh, called Gimmer, uh, played the role of Mandela. He won that election. So for some reason, when I was two and a half years old, I, I liked Mandela. But yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> but, but by the time I was in grade two, I, I had mm. chosen my tribe. And when it came around mm. to the election in 2009, I remember being thoroughly against Zuma, but without being able to properly explain why. Mm. However, in my first year in 2010, um, so, uh, a fellow LLB student, um, someone from a good old Afrikaans, Pretoria, middle class background, she said she stumped me when she said she likes Jacob Zuma. And the problem, and I will remember to this day the embarrassment I felt, that I felt so strongly against the man, but I could not give her a reason as to why she should feel that strongly against him also. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit of a aha moment where I realized, you know, if you're going to 
feel strongly about politics, Hermon. Just, you know, know a bit of what you're talking about. Mm. But a point, a last point to, to, to conclude that I think um, uh, encapsulates a bit of my experience is what I recently in a discussion with Rob Hutchinson called the South African disease. The South African disease, um, especially experienced through my uh, Africana middle-class Pretoria life, is that you don't discuss religion, you don't discuss politics, and you don't discuss rugby. And I think for a hundred years, the, the taboo of being politically involved um, at even a dinner table level was the thing that allowed apartheid to go on for 10 or 20 years longer than it should have. When the evils of it had become so blatant, but the fact that you couldn't discuss those evils in an informal setting, the South African disease stopped you doing that. So there was this, you know, toxic isolationism where everyone went, well, I guess I'm NP. Um, and the, the, the problem with the South African disease is what happened with Jacob Zuma. If the South African disease were not a thing, if the vaccination for that had been rolled out in 2007 and 8, the South African disease might have been less of a factor, enough for people to look at a man standing in front of hundreds of charges of corruption and thinking that it's worth my while to pitch up to the ballot box if only to vote against him. Mm. But that did not happen. And the last 12 years have, I think, been a painful expose on why a hundred years of outsourcing political thinking can cost a country more than you can ever imagine. And I myself suffered of that political disease when I thought in 1994, I'll make my favorite soft toy Mandela when I thought in 1999, of course, I'm a DP man. And when I thought in 2009, with any, without any good reason, that we must stop Zuma. Mm. So when it comes to the poverty, uh, the intellectual poverty of the South African disease, I can only hope that the next decade will be better than the last 10, because they've been quite shit at outsourcing political decision making to people, you know, somewhere in Cape Town or somewhere in Pretoria. Hmm. Yeah, you see, this is why I didn't want to go after her, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th I think the point, I think the point's really well made. This is the thing is that if we learn our lesson, that if we learn the lesson of counterfactualism, that things could have been different if only we'd paid more attention, then, and I think people have to an extent learned that lesson. The next thing about learning this kind of thing is to make it a habit. It's not just to do it once, it's to do it again and again so that you really gain the skills that Hadamon is speaking to, the skills based on information, based on debating, based on engaging, to participate actively as a citizen and not outsource political thinking to, to sort of uh, self-interested third parties that really don't seem to know how to do it very well. I, I think that's very well taken. Marius? Well, um, just thinking about uh, Harriman's first political awakening, I'll say I remember in, the, in 1992 when I was in Standard 5, we had to keep a little diary for English. And I remember writing how very important it is to vote yes in the election because the apartheid is a terrible thing. And it's time to get rid of it. So that, uh, in, that, was, uh, your, that was your little lion moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in 2009, I 
So I knew Jacob Zuma. I mean, I'm a bit older than you guys, so I was a bit more political aware, politically aware in the noughties, to use a terrible term, a boomer term. But I was not a fan of Jacob Zuma and, uh, you know, all these accusations of corruption and the crazy story made me think this guy is not a guy to, to we don't want him to be uh, president of South Africa. That said, though, uh, the DA's uh, election process came out to stop Zuma. And to my uh, eternal chagrin, I, vote, I did not vote for the DA in that election because of those posters. I voted for COPE. Because I just thought, look, Jacob Zuma is going to win anyway. The ANC is going to win. We need a more positive message. But now looking back in hindsight, there was a completely correct message to say. The DA was completely right, like it's been on most things, going back to when it was a DP in the late 90s and warning about BE and cater deployment and whatever, and the consequences it's going to have for South Africa. So, mm. I think, yeah, that's one thing. <laughs> was definitely a mistake. I didn't vote for the DA national level. I did vote for them in Gauteng, though, in that election. But, yeah, I, th- I mean... We, we all knew what was coming. I mean, Jacob Zuma, I mean, going back to what you're saying, maybe so if things are saying, different. Morris, is he voted for my, uh, for my aunt, but not my dad? Yes, exactly. But then things <laughs> changed in, things changed in 2014. He's such an aristocrat, eh? How many people can say that? But I'll tell you, my, first, my very first vote ever was for Tony Leon, which uh, I'm still quite proud of. But anyway, yes, but I mean, maybe if things had been different in the 90s, you know, there was a reason he was made um, Becky's deputy president in the first place in 1997. That's another counterfactual. Apparently, Tabo Becky wanted Joel Nachitenzi to be his deputy. And yeah. you know, things could have been very different if Nachitenzi had been deputy in 1997. You know, maybe there could have been splits in the ANC. Who knows? I mean, but all these things, I mean, one one uh, difference could have made a one, one change could have made a very big difference uh, 10 years later or even a year later. I mean, it's all, you know, your butterfly effect and chaos theory and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I was always, I was never a fan of uh, old uh, Zuma, but I did make the mistake of not voting for the party who explicitly said we need to stop him in 2009. Mm. Mm. Okay, my version, my, I suppose my version in some ways is a bit like your guys in the sense that I didn't dig Zuma from about 2003, actually. I didn't I didn't I didn't dig in when I was a kid and I was like being persuaded by reading the Sunday newspapers um that Trevor Manuel had it right on fiscal conservatism and then Jacob Zuma and and that seemed to me to go with a kind of pragmatism that I thought required being careful about race and and the the way that the bullion onion look I think played out to me as a kid that really bugged me that Zuma didn't come out to to stick up for Nguka. I thought that would have been a an a, to use a, a Boris Johnsonian phrase. It would have shown a largeness of spirit for him to say, "Look, my critic might be completely wrong and mo- politically motivated and terrible, but don't don't call him that. Don't call him a whore." Um, I thought his failure to do that was uh, it just bugged me. But and I and I I was kind of vocal about it at school. What was trickier for me was being vocal about the kinds of policies that he was ushering in. So I found it kind of easier to personalize things and say, look, I don't think Zoom is going to be great because I think there's these corruption charges against him. I think that his personal morality seems a bit wanting, and I think that he's got bad friends. He's got friends that say terrible things and he doesn't stop them. But I didn't 
really publicly criticize the policy. Like I talk about it with some of my friends and I was like uh, blessed with like a very diverse cosmopolitan like Joburg Santon elite kind of boarding school environment that has the money to bring in lots of scholarship kids like me and also lots of money to attract the best black and white diamonds. So we were a, a, a mixed up enough crowd that, that no one felt like they were overpowering everyone else. So everyone could actually air their views quite freely. And I just remember as Matric came along and Zuma's career was re was 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 coming back to life after him being fired as deputy president when everyone seemed to think it was over. The policy discussion just became too tiring. It just became too clear that if you were like not only anti-Zuma, but also anti-BE and anti-CADA deployment, then you were a bit of a poopoo. And it just became tempting for me, and I and I fell for this temptation to kind of put those conversations away in favor of like, where are we going to go get some drinks? And do you know where the pretty girls are hanging out this weekend? And it took me really until I came back to South Africa in 2014 to see how much things had degraded, to think that it's even remotely worth it to speak out. And then still, I can't say that I did in any of the kind of gutsy ways that you guys have spoken to campaigning and writing and being a you know a lobbyist and journalist like Marius. It it uh, it took me a while still. And and on a personal level, I think one thing that did change things for me was the Zuma must fall public displays. I think it kind of made it real that Look, you might be an outsider at this dinner party and that dinner party, but you are actually also part of another community that sees through the insults and the slurs and the mudslinging and the lies and wants something enough to actually put in the effort to to go out there. So I'm not sure that that's my moment. I'd have to think about it more. I kind of, but I think that definitely was a moment for me of thinking that. And and I don't want to sound too self-deprecating. I mean, I was at the first one where there were only like 50 people. But even that felt different to being at the second one where there were 10,000. And and I do think that, you know, in that way, I'm a, I was a bit of a sheeple, as they put it, right? I was like my 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 willingness to say things in in public rather than to friends. Uh, changed after I saw this special kind of public display. And to me, I, you know, if I think like, how could things have been different? Yeah, there's a lot of ways. One of the interesting kind of factors is had there been more effectively Zuma must fall rallies earlier, even before he became president. And there the difficulty is that there was there was real threats of violence coming from his allies. And that's where the thuggishness in a way set in was that around the rape trial, I mean the ANC Women's League and the Youth League and Malema will will die for this guy, will kill for this guy. There really was a thuggish element and it kind of made the streets off limits for a certain kind of political participation. And I think that that cost 
can be hard to see in a world that is so Twitterized and online, and especially in a South Africa that's been locked down for a year, and it's hard to imagine any kind of public rallies. Uh, but I think that it's just, yeah, my, my final note maybe on this is that I think losing the streets, um, I get the sense from reading the sort of 20th century history of Europe that, that losing the streets is something that matters a lot in a lot of different countries. Whatever the particular conflicts are, it's a devastating thing to, mm. to have people feel too physically afraid because that physical courage thing does matter too. And I, I, yeah, we didn't have enough I, of yeah, that I remember, translating I remember, into the biggest stuff. I remember my version of, of experience is that when I marched with the DA to Kasatu House to demand that they cease their blocking of the youth wage subsidy, which was something the DA supported at the time. And Kasatu members showed up and threw bricks at us. Um, mm. And there was a massive street battle that then took, took place. It was, I mean, I loved it because most guys didn't get hit with a brick, but <laughs> and it was really exciting. I got tear gassed, and it was, it was so much, you know, so much fun. But it, you mm. know, thinking back on it, like that's mostly because I was just in the heat of the moment. Like it, uh, mm. it really was quite horrifying in a lot of ways. Particularly at one point when the DA started to move away, and the Kasatu guys came after us, and I just saw this mass of people with Kasatu banners and shirts charging down a street towards us. And I've never been much of a runner. Um, I am a man of birth. <laughs> but man, did I run. <laughs> you had tailed yourself out of there. Oh, yeah. Um, should, we, should, we, should we call it to a close there, Gabriel? Because we are almost two hours on our longest ever podcast. Uh, is there anything final you think we should? We yeah. Should I, so so I'm, I'm loving Marius's puppy uh, whiffing in the background there. Uh, all <laughs> yeah. voices matter. Always, uh, always interrupts our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and Herman, you can see that Herman is yeah. quite an adorable puppy. Cuts yeah, I, puppy, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think listeners who've listened to this whole thing through in one go, uh, yeah, well done, for Gryffindor. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, if you've taken it in two bites, uh, not bad. We don't plan on doing this kind of extended long thing uh, very often. We did think that this is a very special thing. And Nicholas and I discussed this before the show. This week is extraordinary. This week is, this is the kind of week in history that I think I'm going to remember for as long as my, my noggin remains unbricked and unbashed. We have not only seen Jacob Zuma go to jail after yeah, decades of needing to have gone to jail. We've also seen Ace Makashule's appeal for a suspension being overturned. We've also seen reports that the attempt to change the Bill of Rights to slash property rights has been split and foibled, that it might have to start again if the amendment committee can't uh, get its act together at this stage it seems like it's really failing to find the two-thirds majority to pass things as they are because team everything custodianship and team something certain custodianship aren't getting along it's also coming on the back of i think important uh important global moments the the mother of all parliaments is sort of basically pushed to 
distinguish between cases and deaths in terms of coronavirus and open up in the face right. of cases and against deaths. I, I, I don't want to list all of the things in the world that are kind of interesting, but I really do think in South Africa's case, it's it's an important time to, yeah, to, like, to reflect. It, and that's what we've was, tried to do here. And I don't think we've given all the yeah. answers and I don't even think we've asked all the questions. Uh, but I do think that having this special long podcast with, 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 with two guests, two wonderful colleagues, has been our kind of way of trying to say that this is special. This is not every day. Yeah. And yeah, it's can, something to can note. I, can I just add to that? I mean, we did come to a constitutional crisis or what would have, could have been a massive constitutional crisis. And like that Jan Smuts quote about South Africa, uh, I don't actually know if it is a Jan Smuts yes. quote, but I've been told it's a Jan Smuts quote. The best didn't happen. Because the best could have should have happened a long time ago. Zuma should have gone to jail. It should never have been a question of whether he was going to go uh, comply with the court summons. But the worst didn't happen either, which is that Zuma manages to successfully evade arrest. So once again, as South Africans, we managed Kevin, to dodge the bullet. I think a very good quote that's also from the history is the historian uh, De Kivitz, I can't remember his first name. And he said, South Africa advances by economic uh, windfalls and uh, regresses by political mistakes or whatever the case is. And I think that's still, that hasn't, and I think he made that quote in the, he said that in the 40s, and I don't think it's changed. It's still exactly the same. Yeah. And so we, we continue to limp on, sort of living to fight another day somehow, um, despite mm. despite everything. Mm. So, yeah. I don't should know. We, should we limp? Limp. I also want to do a bit of a dance. I really do. I think that. <laughs> you can dance when you're limping. I, right, a one-legged kind of <laughs> Monty Python special walk dance. Herman's, Herman's showing us a great, his great let's move make right a, Let's make a deal. When the plague is over and we can all get together, we'll go we'll go drawling and we can watch Gabriel dance. Obviously, Herman being an Afrikaner, he'll want to go to Presley's and we'll watch his... No, 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 no I, I, I am an Afrikaner, but I'm also a doper. And the dopers are against... Sex in standing positions because it could lead to dancing. On top of anything fun, aren't they? Yes, we're just fundamentally against joy. Yeah. You, guys we can watch us, you can watch us do it, Herman, from the sidelines. Yeah, and don't talk about anything fundamental. They only speak about the mental stuff because they're not allowed. They don't like fun. No, 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 no. In, in defense of Dorpers, we never got involved in the apartheid debate because we're 2,000 years behind everyone else. In about 2,000 years, the Dorper church will go, this apartheid thing, how do we feel about it? <laughs> okay. You guys are complaining about the, the Roman Empire being horrible against Christians. Then. Yeah, they're trying to figure out whether that was terrible or the worst. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the Christological disputes of the third century. Um, sorry, that's the fourth century. Anyway, yes. uh, let us let us call it to a close then, um, and say we hope you guys enjoyed this marathon long episode. Uh, please do leave us send us some feedback if you can, um, especially in the comment section on the Daily Friend website. Just let us know what you thought. If you thought our little experiment here worked, um, I, I I certainly had a lot of fun, um, and I'm sure that any listeners who stuck it out through this entire thing probably enjoyed it too. But um, what I can say is uh, keep that flag of liberty flying. <laughs>